can turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And as you're doing so, let me remind you that we are entering the Christmas season. Unfortunately, I wish we could wait until December, but from all the advertising, apparently we've already entered the Christmas season. A time of gift giving. Uh, Rightly or wrongly, I'm not going down that road. I'm just acknowledging it is a time of gift giving. And it begs the question, what makes the perfect gift? What makes the perfect gift? The perfect gift necessarily includes two ingredients. Here we go. Ingredient number one, what it costs the person who gives. In other words, the perfect gift must involve a measure of sacrifice, time, thought, effort, energy, and the list goes on. Ingredient number two, the perfect gift, it is necessary, it is made perfect, not just by what it costs the one who gives, but by what it offers the one who receives. It must meet a need. Notice I did not use the word desire. I'm not talking about desires. Our desires can be easily misplaced. The perfect gift must meet a need. That is why our children 30, 40 years from now will not remember the gifts they receive at Christmas time but they will remember how much time their parents spent with them. Why? Because a gift simply is a desire, meeting a desire. But time spent with a loved one satisfies a need. And so these are the two essential ingredients which constitute the perfect gift. What it costs the giver. It must involve a measure of sacrifice. And what it gives, what it imparts to the receiver, it must indeed satisfy a need. Today we're going to consider the most perfect gift of all. It is the most perfect gift of all because it costs everything. And it gives everything. It is the most perfect gift of all because it comes at the greatest cost and it meets the greatest need. Did you get all that? With that burning in your mind, if you found Romans chapter 5, follow along as I begin reading in the 12th verse. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, 
much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, last Sunday, I spoke briefly, somewhat briefly, uh, regarding these verses as a whole in their entirety. And I tackled three specifics, and I want to review them just briefly, because we, we need to be clear on these to make sense of the individual parts. As we dive into the text, and as we wrestle with different phrases, and come to grips with different words, and draw out the significance of what Paul is saying, we need to keep sight of the whole. And so again, just briefly, three points of interest, three points we must be clear on. And let me put them to you again by way of questions. The first is this, what is Paul's motive? So in these verses I just read, verses 12 through 21, what is his motive? What is he doing? Why? We're trying to answer the question, why? We just answered the question in that final song we sang. Show us Christ. There's the answer to that question, why? What is his motive? What is he doing? He wants to show us Christ. In the first 11 verses, same chapter, he has pointed us to Christ. He has emphasized in the very first verse that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He has repeated the same thought in the 11th verse. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now in verses 12 through 21, he quite literally wants to knock the ball out of the park. He wants to take it to a whole new level as he demonstrates for us the significance of what it means to be saved in Christ, what it means to be united with Christ. He wants to take it to a whole new stratosphere and show us the Lord Jesus. That's his motive. Second question was this, what's his method? How does he do it? And the answer is very simple. He does it by way of a comparison. In any comparison, there are necessarily what? Two parts, part one, part two, part A, part B. And there are two parts in this comparison. He introduces part number one in the 12th verse. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, it's Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. There is part one in this comparison. Now, Paul is a little complicated, at least for us. Why? Because he does not introduce part two until verse 18. He does not complete the comparison 
in verse 13, 14, 15, 16, or 17. He doesn't complete it. He doesn't get to the second part until the 18th verse. You can quite literally lift verses 13 through 17 right out of the text. Put away those scissors. Don't do it literally. But you can. You can lift verses 13 through 17 right out of the text, and it still makes perfect sense. His main point is encapsulated in the 12th verse, verses 18 and 19, where he completes the comparison. One man over here, Adam. Second man over here, the last Adam, Christ. Why the interruption in the comparison? By way of clarification. He knows a couple of his comments will be distracting for us. And he doesn't want us to be distracted from the Lord Jesus. His motive is to show us Christ. Put him on display. Oh, but, but I know that to, to achieve that, to get there, I need to clear up a couple of points. The first is that phrase at the end of verse 12. Because all sinned. What does that mean? He explains it in verses 13 through 14. And then at the end of verse 14, he uses another tricky phrase, who was a type of the one who was to come. What does that mean? He answers it in verses 15 through 17. And so having clarified anything that is potentially distracting, anything that might turn our attention away from his great objective, which is to put on display the Lord Jesus, he can now return in the 18th verse to the comparison that he introduced in the 12th verse. I need to take a breath. And undoubtedly, you need to just shake your head a little bit. That is his Method, his method. The third question was this. What is his message then? How does he show us Christ? What in particular does he show us of Christ? Again, the essential answer is found in the 12th, the 18th, and the 19th verses. I was in a very gracious mood this past week. And what I did in your sermon notes, is attempt, and I hope effectively attempt, to summarize it for you. And so if you have a bulletin, just take it for a moment. Perhaps it's already open on your lap. You'll see there in that section entitled Sermon Notes, the sermon title, the free gift. The verses we're primarily concerned about today, Romans 5, 15 through 17, and then just below that, Two columns. Do you see it? There is a succinct summation of Paul's message in these verses. Left column. There's the first part of the comparison. There was a man who lived an awfully long time ago, and his name was Adam. Move down the column. Adam was given a commandment. You shall not eat from that tree. In the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Adam disobeyed flagrantly, willfully, stubbornly, consciously disobeyed. That's Adam's disobedience. Move down. Here is the point Paul makes in the, in the text. Adam's disobedience is counted to all. Adam's disobedience is reckoned to every individual who has ever lived. Do you know what that means? Let me get very personal. Adam's disobedience is imputed to you. 
How is that possible? It is possible because God made a covenant with Adam. And Adam stood as the representative of all his descendants. Every human being who has ever lived. Therefore, when Adam disobeyed, guess what, my friend? As far as God is concerned, you disobeyed. Adam's sin is your sin. Adam's condemnation is our condemnation. Adam's guilt is our guilt. That brings us to the next phrase in that column. All are condemned in Adam. And what is the consequence? Eternal death. But that's not the end of it. Part B. The second column. There is another representative. There is another head. The last Adam. The Lord Jesus Christ. God incarnate. Move down that right hand column. What do you see? Christ's obedience. That Christ triumphed where Adam failed. That Christ triumphed over the devil's temptation. Christ lived a perfect life. Christ obeyed in thought, in word, and in deed. And his obedience culminated in him submitting to death upon Calvary's cross. A death which he died on behalf of his people. And God made a covenant with Christ. And just as there is a covenant of works in Adam... There is a covenant of grace in Christ, whereby all who are one with him by faith, all who are one with him by faith, Christ's obedience is reckoned to be their obedience. The life that Christ lived, I stand before you and I say it, I hope with a big smile on my face. The life the Lord Jesus lived is my life. That's my obedience. That is my righteousness. That is why I stand justified in the sight of God. And the death that he died is my death. I died with him. I was buried with him. And I rose again with him. The penalty for my sin having been paid in full. All are justified in Christ. And what is the result? Eternal life. That is his message. Show us Christ. And he does so by way of a comparison. Showing us now the beauty of the Lord Jesus. The efficacy of his work. And exactly what we are by covenant. A covenant of grace in Christ. The Lord Jesus has fulfilled the covenant of works on behalf of his people. The Lord Jesus has obeyed. The Lord Jesus has borne the curse. And now because I am one with him, he has taken a hold of me by the Holy Spirit. And I have taken hold of him by faith. Here is the wonder of wonders. What is mine is his, my sin. And he has paid it in full. And what is his is mine, his righteousness. And I am accepted by a righteous God. That is the message. I want to add a point of clarification because some are susceptible to this, and I've met it certainly in the past. And actually, I've heard it recently. Some appealing to this text, some appealing to these verses, and saying, you know, it sounds to me as if Paul believes in universalism. You know what that means? That Paul believes everyone is going to be saved. Isn't that what he says? All are condemned in Adam. All are justified 
in Christ. Therefore, when it all comes out in the wash at the end, everyone is going to be justified. That's what Paul, Paul is a universalist. Nothing could be further from the truth. He is no such thing. He has defined exactly what he means by all who are in Christ. Just turn for a moment. Go back with me. Just a brief journey. Back to chapter 1. We can look at so many verses. I'm just going to draw your attention to three. Look at chapter 1, verse 16. And what Paul writes there at the outset of his epistle. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone. There's a qualifier. Who believes? Everyone who believes. Journey with me now into the third chapter. And look at the 26th verse. We could read, well, we could read chapter 3 in its entirety. We don't have time. I'll read the 26th. Here it is. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be just and the justifier of everyone. Of the one who has faith in Jesus. Oh, there's so many texts in these first five chapters. Just look at, look at our text, our verses under consideration. And look at what Paul says in the 17th verse. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. There is a qualifier. Paul in these chapters clearly explains who he has in view when he speaks of all in Christ. He has a very exclusive. He has a very particular. He has a very limited group of people before him. It is the people of God. It is those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. While I'm on objections and confusion, let me address another one. I think I spoke to it just briefly last Sunday. I'll speak to it briefly again. Something I have heard on many occasions over the years. When considering this text or reading different commentaries or writings or, dare I say, it, blog posts on this text, that individual, individual will say, well, you know, this, this talk of Adam and this talk of being guilty in Adam, of being condemned in Adam. You know, I don't really like that. It doesn't sit well with me. It seems unfair. And um, I don't know, maybe there's somebody here this morning struggling with that. Well, you know, I wasn't there. If I was there, maybe I would, I, would have, I would have done a better job of it. I wouldn't have made such a mess of it if I had been there. How fair is that? That God would make a covenant without me present. Some guy named Adam. Oh, what do I know about Adam? And made a covenant with him. And as far as God was concerned, he was making that covenant with me. And because Adam failed, I've failed. Because Adam sinned, I've sinned. Because Adam is guilty, I'm guilty. Because Adam is condemned, I'm condemned. That's not fair. To which my response, I guess, is twofold. The first part of the response is this. I don't lose any sleep over what you think is fair. I don't. I really don't. Uh, you go back and you just read Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, and what the Apostle Paul says about us, and just how skewed we are in our understanding, just how twisted we are in our outlook, and just how distorted our sense of right and wrong, truth and error is. 
It might not seem fair to us, but I have absolutely no uncertainty that uh, before God, it is perfectly fair. It is perfectly just. The second part of the answer is this. Without that imputation, without that truth of original sin, Adam's transgression imputed to us, guess what? If it's not true, neither is the second half. Right? And that's just a no-brainer, right? If, If it's not true... That, that we weren't there by covenant and that God reckoned to us Adam's sin, Adam's disobedience, Adam's unrighteousness, the, the, the resulting guilt and condemnation, then guess what? The second part of the comparison can't be true, which means what? Oh, my friend, there is no hope. There is no, show us Christ. What gibberish? It means nothing. No, you see, the, both parts of the comparison true, holding fast that in the reckoning of God, there are these two men. There is Adam and there is Christ. There is a covenant of works and there is a covenant of grace. Either you are in Adam or you are in Christ. Either you are under the covenant of works and you are condemned in the sight of God, sentence has been passed, and all you are waiting for is eternal judgment. Or you are in Christ, and judgment has been meted out in full upon Calvary's cross. The wrath of God has been appeased, the justice of God has been satisfied, and the mercy of God has been secured. Paul is taking us up high. He wants us to see the plan of redemption from the mountaintop and understand how before the foundation of the world, this was God's design to set off the resplendent glory of his grace. We looked at all of that last week. Those three questions, what is his motive? What is his method? What is his message? And last Sunday too, we actually delved into verses 12 through 14. And we understood that what Paul is doing here, yes, he's introducing that first half of the comparison, and he makes three essential points. The first is this, that because Adam sinned, sin invaded the world. That's the word that should be there in the text. It was a hostile takeover. Not only that, because Adam sinned, sin invaded the world, so too death invaded the world. And thirdly, because Adam sinned, yes, sin invaded the world, Death invaded the world, and death spread to all men. Why? He answers the question at the end of the 12th verse. Because all sinned. He is not saying that we have all sinned like Adam. Although we have, we've all disobeyed this very day. He is saying that we have all sinned in Adam. How do we know that? There's the reason for the interruption in verses 13 and 14. He explains that, yes, before the law was given at Sinai, before all those commandments were given through Moses, sin was in the world from the time of the fall to Moses, from Adam to Moses. Sin was most certainly in the world. Just go back and read the book of Genesis, chock full of examples of man's depravity and of man's sinfulness. But he makes the point that, look, sin is not counted. It's not counted as transgression. It's not imputed where there is no law. You see, the law wasn't given until Moses. People sin before Moses, but sin isn't counted as a transgression if if there is not a law. So what's your point, Paul? tells us in the 14th verse, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. It reigned. So if there was no law for people to transgress... But people who were sinners still died. 
Why did they die? They died because they all had sinned. What sin? That law that was originally given in the garden, the covenant of works. We sinned in him. His sin is our sin. His transgression is our transgression. His disobedience is our disobedience. His guilt is our guilt. His condemnation is our condemnation. This is a big pill to swallow. Please understand that. No additional sin needed to be committed. That does not impress upon us the gravity of sin. Nothing will. One single act condemned the entire human race. That's his point in verses 12 through 14. We come now today quickly through verses 15 through 17. And what I want to draw out of these verses is Really, what I want to do is build on that last phrase in verse 14. Paul makes the point that Adam, yes, he was a type of the one who was to come. And again, he's going to get to it in verses 18 and 19. He's going to explain exactly what he means. But now we have this second interruption, verses 15 through 17. Why? Simply because as I'm reading that, well, Adam was a type of the one who was to come. I might conclude too much. I might assume too much in that comparison. And so what Paul does is he just touches the brakes slightly in verses 15 through 17. And he says, hold on a second. Let me just clarify, lest there be any confusion. And he utters a statement at the start of verse 15. But the free gift, that is what Christ accomplished, is not like the trespass. And so yes, Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Yes, there is this tremendous comparison that I want to point you to, but I want you to understand that they're not exactly the same, Adam and Christ. I don't want you to think there's absolute equivalency between the two because there isn't. I don't want you to think that Adam and Christ absolutely equal what they did, absolutely equal. No, what, you, what I want you to understand is that Christ's obedience is vastly superior to Adam's disobedience. And he shows it in three ways. He tells us firstly in the 15th verse that they, that is Adam's disobedience, Christ's obedience, they differ in their essence, their very nature. Look closely. It's there in the 15th verse. But the free gift is not like the trespass. So what Christ did, his obedience, his act of righteousness, is not like the trespass. Let me, let, let me explain why. Here's reason number one. For if many died through one man's trespass, if many died through one man's trespass, what is that? That's called justice. There was a trespass, there was a transgression, there was a consequence. That's justice. Much more, much more have the grace of God And the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And so they differ in their very essence. We are talking about the difference between justice and mercy. We're talking about the difference between what was deserved and what was undeserved. We are speaking of the difference between what was merited, earned, And what was unmerited, justice, mercy, the obedience of Christ is vastly superior than the disobedience of Adam. Because Adam's disobedience, the result was justice. 
Christ's obedience, it brought us into the realm of superabounding grace. Here's the second difference, verse 16. They differ in their extent, extent, breadth, magnitude. Verse 16. And the free gift, so what Christ accomplished, is not like the result of that one man's, Adam's sin. Why, Paul? Pray tell. He goes on and he explains. For the judgment following, how many trespasses? One trespass. One trespass, that's all it took, brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. And so they differ in their extent. It is the difference between one trespass and many trespasses. That by Adam's one singular act of disobedience, there resulted death and condemnation for all people. The Lord Jesus Christ did not simply atone for that one singular act of disobedience. He bore a mountain full of sin. Each and every sin his people have ever committed since the fall, he bore them all individually, specifically, particularly upon Calvary's cross. Oh, they are different in their extent. The righteousness imputed to those in Christ is vastly superior than the sin imputed to those in in Adam. Now here's the third difference, verse 17. They differ in their effect, the result. 17th verse, if because of one man's trespass, again, that's Adam's act of disobedience, if because of one man's trespass, singular act, death reigned through that one man, oh, much more. Will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? And so it is the difference between the reign of death and the reign in life. That by Christ's substitutionary sacrifice upon Calvary's cross, He bore the curse in full, whereby all who are united with him by faith reign in newness of life with him. Oh, the life, the life that comes to those in Christ is vastly superior to the death that comes to those in Adam. That's his point. Oh, show me Christ. Show me Christ. I'm going to make this comparison between Adam and Christ. I want you to understand federal theology. I want you to get covenant theology. I want you to understand how these two acted as representatives on behalf of their respective people. Oh, but before I get there, let me just clear up a few things. I don't want you to think in terms of equivalency. Oh, no, 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 no. What the Lord Jesus did upon Calvary's cross was vastly superior to Adam's single act Trespass, transgression. He draws it out in another way in these verses. He draws it out in another way. He draws it out with a phrase, 
which is actually the title for this sermon. Look at the start of the 15th verse. But the free gift. Move through that verse halfway through and you'll find it again. And the free gift. Proceed into the 16th verse and what do you find right at the outset? And the free gift. Move more or less halfway through that verse and what do we read yet again? But the free gift. Fifth time, verse 17, right at the end. And the free gift, vastly superior to Adam, vastly superior to Adam's transgression. A covenant which is vastly superior to that covenant of works. Because in this covenant, in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we behold the superabounding grace and mercy of Almighty God. The free gift. I began by speaking of the perfect gift. Here you have it. Free in what sense? Not from God's vantage point. It cost him everything. Free from our vantage point. Why? Because it gives us Everything and gives us everything by as an expression, a manifestation of his grace. I want you to hone in on a couple of phrases. I want to give you a phrase to believers here, uh, a takeaway phrase from these verses for you to meditate upon and think on. And similarly, I want to give a phrase to unbelievers gathered here this morning, something for you to think on and take home. Here's the first phrase. It's directed at Christians. It's directed at those of us who are believers. Directed at those of us who know what it means to be in Christ. The phrase is found in the 16th verse. Let me read it again in its entirety and I'll pinpoint the exact words I'm thinking of. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Here it is. Here's the phrase I want you to get, Christian. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For many years, for many years, I lived with this idea. Whenever I would think of the cross and whenever I would think of sin imputed, reckoned to Christ upon Calvary's cross, I always thought of sin in the general. Do you understand what I mean by that? Sin as a concept. Sin in its entirety. No, 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 no. I came to realize years ago that, that that's not really what's going on at the cross. It is not sin in general. It is sin in particular. Oh, the need for us as Christians to remember and never lose sight of the fact that as the Lord Jesus Christ died upon Calvary's cross, he did not simply die for sin. He did not simply die for sinners. He died for the very specific, real, tangible sins of his people. 
the trespasses and the transgressions of all those who would believe in him. He died. When Christ died on the cross, he died for Noah's drunkenness. Not just sin in the abstract. He died for Noah's drunkenness. He died for Abraham's deceit. He died for Lot's debauchery. He died for Jacob's stubbornness. He died for Moses' anger. He died for Rahab's harlotry. He died for Samson's worldliness. He died for David's adultery. He died for Hezekiah's pride. He died for Thomas's doubt. He died for Peter's denial. He died for Paul's violence. Thomas Goodwin writes, Christ is made a drain. Yes, think of a drain in the home. It's exactly what he means. Christ is made a drain down which each and every one of my sins runs. Oh, that is wonderful. Trespasses, transgressions, not sin in generalities, my friends. Not sin in the abstract, not a hypothetical atonement. A very particular, defined, dare I say, limited atonement in which Christ became sin for his people, are very specific, particular sins imputed to him. I want to draw out five implications of that for Christians, for believers. I'm putting my very pastoral hat on now. Here we go. Five implications. Number one, given this wonderful truth, that phrase there in verse 16, fellow believers, See Christ's immense love for his people. See it. His immense love for his people. That he would not only be made a curse for us, but that he would be made sin for us. This is love beyond all expression. This is love that brings us to a deep sense of the wonder of God's grace toward us. So see it. See Christ's immense love for his people. Secondly, comfort yourself. Comfort yourself with the knowledge that Christ is greater than your heart. Comfort yourself with the knowledge, the awareness, the perception that Christ is greater than your heart. He knows your sins better than you do. And he took all of them. Upon himself on the cross. There were no sins hidden from Christ's view. As he hung upon Calvary. Here's number three. Apply. Apply Christ's blood. To specific sins. Go over your sins until the red lines of Christ's blood. Cover the black lines of your sins. See him dying for you. See him dying for those fits of rage and anger. See him dying for that perpetual struggle with lust. See him dying for your greed. See him dying for your impatience. See him dying for your unfaithfulness. See him dying for your stubbornness. 
moral failures, unkind words, love of ease, impure thoughts, and it goes on and on. Be specific, rhyme them off, number them all, and cross them, cross them, cross them with the red stripes of Christ's blood until they disappear from view. Here's the fourth. See the completeness of justification. All of your sins were placed on Christ. All of your sins. No sin was exempt. No sin was forgotten. Not the least of your sins was left off the long catalog which Christ had with him upon the cross. None of them. And number five, love much. Love much. Those who are the greatest sinners should love Christ the most. They love much because they realize Christ paid much. Look at the statement again, the 16th verse right at the end. The free gift following many trespasses. Innumerable trespasses. My trespasses, my sins blotted out through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now a phrase, a few words for any unbelievers here today. I want you to look. I beg you to look at what Paul says in the 17th verse. Follow along from the very start. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who, here's what I want you to notice, observe, those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. My friend, if you're not a Christian, hear me please. The grace is free. The life is free. The forgiveness is free. The righteousness is free. Why? Because it is a free gift. And yet what is Paul's point there in the 17th verse? What is it that he makes so succinct, so clear? It is a gift that must be received. Young and old. Male and female, have you received this gift? I'm not asking if you believe it in the abstract. I'm not asking if you can explain it perhaps better than I've explained it. I'm asking, have you received this gift? Have you received it as the treasure of your life? And do you have this assurance that having received the abundance of grace, you now reign in life? Through the one man, Jesus Christ. My charge is simple. As a minister of the gospel, my charge is very simple. Oh, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. See him as Paul has presented him in this text. See him as he stands, as, as the, the apple of his father's eye. See him as he stands at the center of God's eternal plans and purposes. Understand what you are in Adam apart from Christ and understand that this free gift is offered to whomsoever will receive. And I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to receive it this day and make Christ the treasure of your life.
our Father in heaven. We do pray now your blessing upon the preaching of your word. We pray that you might come now and work in the hearts of men and women, boys and girls. We pray that you might impress deeply upon us that we might, in, might truly eat the word that it is implanted deep within. Pray that it would bear fruit, fruit for your glory, fruit for the furtherance of your kingdom and the reverence of your name. And in the midst of all this and far surpassing all of this, we pray that Christ might be glorified through what we have heard this day. In his name we ask it. Amen.